Well, um, I'm wondering this morning, how much of your day do you think about justification by faith alone? And I'm also wondering how many people just yawned after I said that. (laughs) For most of you, I would assume dwelling on such a doctrine uh, doesn't take up much of your brain space as you go throughout your day. For others, you still may be wondering what on earth I'm even talking about right now. So let me just help to clarify. Justification is just a big theological word that simply means to be declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And justification by faith is the main theme of the book of Galatians, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it's one of the most essential doctrines to Christianity. It's the bedrock from which the Christian life is lived. Martin Luther, the famous 16th century reformer, once said, The doctrine of justification by faith in Christ is the head and cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. John Calvin, one of Luther's contemporaries, refers to the doctrine of justification as the main hinge on which religion turns. So, to have a right understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone means you have a right understanding of the gospel. Or in other words, if you get justification by faith wrong, you get the gospel wrong, which makes this doctrine vital for every single person in this room to understand and to know and to live out in their own Christian life. So let me ask you this morning, what do you think are the things that are acceptable to God and pleasing to him? How can a sinful person be in right standing before a holy and just God, the one that created them. Is justification by faith in Christ just some theological jargon, a Christian doctrine only to give mental assent to, or would you say it actually has implications for how you live out your everyday life? In our text this morning in Galatians chapter 2, our text answers some of these questions. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 2. If not, that's okay. I'll I'll read these verses as we follow along. We're going to start in verse 11. So before we get there, just to get caught up to speed on what is going on here in the book of Galatians, up until this point in the book, the Apostle Paul has been upholding the authority of the gospel message that he proclaimed. The problem that was in the Galatian churches was that there was false teachers that were infiltrating the churches and attacking the legitimacy of Paul's gospel message. They distorted his gospel by requiring the believers to adhere to the Mosaic law in order to be fully saved and accepted by God. And in chapter 1, we see that Paul is astonished He's astonished that these churches so quickly deserted the message of the gospel for a false gospel. And he goes on this defense, and he proves that 
his gospel was one of divine origin, that he received it from Jesus himself, and that was even attested by the apostles. And he's making this case for the authority of this gospel message that he brought. And, he, and that's where it brings us to our text this morning in chapter 2, verse 11. And so what we see, starting in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, the authority of Paul's gospel is further vindicated through his rebuke of Peter, who was one of the pillars in the Jerusalem church. And even though the apostle Peter was one of the ones that signed off on, on Paul's uh, message as, as true and valid back in chapter 2, verse 9, we see him in these verses compromising the same gospel message through his conduct. He compromised the gospel through his behavior, through his conduct towards other believers in Christ. And so let's take a look and see what happens here. In verses, We'll start off in verses 11 through 13, and I'll go ahead and read those for us. But when Cephas, which is another name for Peter, that's Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what we can see immediately from this section is that when Peter was in Antioch, he was causing division among the church through his actions. Paul says in verse 11 that when he showed up and learned what was happening, he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Now, what does that mean? What does he mean by being stood condemned? Well, Peter was in the wrong, yes, But even more than that, the phrase carries more of a severe tone to it that really communicates that he was condemned by God. And we see the cause of this severity here in the next few verses, which lay out the reasons why for Peter's condemnation. So take a look again at verse 12. It says, for before certain men came from James. Now, this is James, Jesus's half brother who is also the leader of uh, a pillar in the Jerusalem church, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. So before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself from the circumcision party. So you see what's going on here. In ancient times, Jews eating with Gentiles was a big deal. So we're not just talking about Peter gathering up his Gentile buddies, going through the drive through at McDonald's, eating and having a good time together. When Peter is eating with the Gentiles, he was continually partaking in foods that would be considered unclean and prohibited according to Jewish Old Testament law. Now, do you remember what God taught Peter in Acts chapter 10? In Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on this rooftop. He was praying out to God. God showed him a vision and taught him that all the barriers between Jew and Gentile were done away with, including these food restrictions. And so what we hear, what we see here in this text is really Peter 
acting upon what God taught him in chapter 10, that he was eating with the Gentiles and it was totally fine. But when these men from James came, what did he do? He drew back. He separated himself from the Gentiles because look what the text says, because he feared the circumcision party. Now, who are these guys? Well, they're A lot of different views here, but I believe that they're a different group from the men from James. I believe they're, these are the circumcision party or a group of a Jewish group that believed if a Gentile became a Christian, they had to convert to Judaism and undergo the full proselyte procedure, meaning they still had to adhere to the Mosaic law, the Sabbath days, the dietary laws, and the circumcision to be fully justified. And this was the main issue that was happening in these Galatian churches. Was that this is why Paul was so upset throughout this whole entire letter. Because these people were trying to add law to grace. And in so doing, they were nullifying the grace of God in Christ. Which is what we'll see in verse 21. And so in verse 12, we see Peter fearing this group specifically fearing being persecuted from them. And so he separated himself from the Gentiles because of his actions. And so look what happens next in verse 13. It reads, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So you see what happened here? Through Peter's actions... In separating himself from the Gentiles, he was acting hypocritically. And the disastrous result that followed that was that he was bringing along other people with him. And so they were also acting hypocritical in their conduct. And so can't you start to see why this is such a big deal? Not only does Peter's sinful behavior send a ripple effect to others... But what he was doing was much, much greater than that. What he was doing was he was compromising the gospel message. The gospel was compromised. It was compromising the gospel itself. You could even say Peter's actions were lining up with the actions of these false teachers. The same guys that Paul has been going to bat on 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 chapters 1 and 2. And then we get to our passage... And it's like, what? Like, you too, Peter? Like, what is happening here? You're deviating from the truth of the gospel message. See, it's important to notice that Paul's not rebuking Peter because he wasn't adhering to the Jewish food laws. He's not rebuking him because he ate with the Gentiles and not requiring them to be circumcised. He's not even rebuking them from hanging out with the Jewish people. The main problem that Paul is addressing is a gospel problem. It's a gospel issue, and this is how he describes it in verse 14. Listen to his rebuke in verse 14. Listen to what he says. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see that? Their conduct was really exposing their hearts 
And Peter's behavior was sending a new message, one that was contrary to the truth of the gospel. And Paul is like perplexed about it. He's opposing Peter to his face before them all and essentially, essentially saying, Peter, how, how could you, man? How could you turn away and separate yourself from your Gentile brothers? Don't you see the message that you're communicating to them? Your actions are in effect forcing them to adhere to Jewish law in order to be accepted by God. And to require this of the Gentiles is to abandon the grace of God, which is the fundamental hallmark of the gospel. See, Paul was contending here with a gospel issue. And in my opinion, I believe in verses 15 through 21, this next section, he continues to confront Peter and begins to lay out this clear explanation of the gospel. The gospel explained. And this is something that Peter had previously come to know. And this is what we'll see. Let's read verses 15 and 16 together. So he goes on to say in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul's emphasis here is to remind Peter that justification by faith in Christ is the only justification that makes one right with God. Through justification by works, Paul says, no one is justified. And so do you hear the two different ways? Do you hear the two systems that are being at play here? There's, there's justification by faith, and then there's justification by works. And justification by works is what Paul has been fighting against the whole entire book of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, just look over with me and at Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11 reads that, like this. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, or you could say by works of the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Yes, that's right. That's exactly what we see here in verse 16. Now, if you jump over to Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, probably the next page in your Bible. Galatians chapter 5, Five, verse 4 says this, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And you, so do you see what's at stake here? The truth of the gospel is that through faith in Christ is that's the only way someone can be justified. And that is what Paul is going to bat for. And he's reminding Peter of this. In verses 15 and 16. So if you were to go back to our passage in verse 15, listen to what he says in the beginning. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So that can be kind of confusing. What in the world is he meaning by that? 
Well, what he's meaning is that Paul and Peter were both Jews by nature. That they were the Jewish people, that they were the ones that received the law from God. They received the promises, the covenants. They were the ones that received these things as opposed to the Gentiles who were outside of the covenant. They were outside of the law. They didn't receive those things. And so he's saying to Peter, we were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we still know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. It's like he's looking at Peter right in his face and saying to him, Peter, do you remember, brother? You remember how you got saved, how we got saved, how we came to understand the gospel, that we came to understand it, knowing that it was only by faith. Even for us Jews, we knew that it was only by faith alone that we can be justified. And so he's reminding him of the truth of the gospel, that it's only by grace through faith that we have been saved, not of works. And so just as, as Paul is, is making this appeal to Peter, let me make my appeal to you this morning. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. Your right standing before God, your acceptance before God is not defined by your performance, your religious duties, your good deeds, or anything else. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Before Christ, you were hopeless, wallowing in your own sin, sin that deserved judgment, sin that deserved hell. But Christ saw you in your pity, and he came to earth, and lived the life that you couldn't live, and died the death that you deserved. He stepped in your place and paid the debt that you owed. He took your sin. He took your judgment. He took your shame, and he paid your debt without any of your help. When he was hanging there on that cross, what did he say? He cried out, It is finished. The work has been complete. The law fulfilled. And by faith in this Jesus, you are fully accepted and justified. Pure, blameless, and righteous in his sight. Because get this, through our faith in Christ, he takes our sin and then imputes to us his perfect righteousness. I mean, that is something to get excited about this morning. That by faith in this Jesus, we are fully justified in him. Justification by faith alone is like this debit card that I have right here. If I can get it out of my wallet. This debit card is tied to my bank account. And I won't have to use it very many times until it's completely wiped out (laughs) and completely empty. And so I have to continue to work to put money back into this bank account so that there's 
money in there for me to withdraw. I have to earn my wages. But justification by faith alone is like Christ depositing all of his eternal riches into that account. It's like having a never-ending bank account of grace that I can withdraw from at any time I want to, and it never runs dry. And it was only made possible not because of anything that I did, but because Christ spilt his blood on the cross and finished the work so that I can be free. And by faith in him, I receive what is his. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when you embrace justification by faith alone, you can rest. You can be comforted by the fact that Christ has paid your debt and fully accepted you for who you are on the basis of his own sacrifice for you on the cross. His righteousness becomes yours. His perfect obedience becomes yours. His perfect work became yours in Christ. So let me just say something to those who may be unbelieving here this morning. You are not righteous enough to meet the righteous standard of God. You will never attain salvation on your own merits or by your own work. You need a righteousness that is outside of yourself. To use my analogy, you need a righteousness that is going to give you eternal riches forever. A righteousness not of your own. And the good news this morning is that you can have that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I call on you this morning to come to him, to trust in this Christ and believe on him this morning. Look to the Son and believe in his name. You can be fully justified and your sins forgiven this morning by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is doing here in verses 15 and 16. He's reminding Peter of these truths that we're rehearsing right now. That faith alone in Christ justifies And by the works of the law, no one is justified at all. The works of the law, meaning here, adhering to the law as the means to one's own justification before God. And what we'll see next in these next couple verses is that the law was never intended to justify us in the first place. The Mosaic law was was never intended to justify sinners. And we begin to see that in these coming verses. Look at verses 17 through 18. I'll go ahead and read verse 17. But if he still, this is Paul still, still going to and talking to Peter here. 
But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So verse 17 can be a little challenging to understand, but here's my best attempt on translating it. Paul is saying, but if, if we, Peter, in seeking to be justified in Christ by faith alone, are found to be on the same ground as the Gentile sinners who are outside of the covenant, does that make Christ a promoter of sin? Or in other words, if we, Peter, are found to be abandoning the law for our justification and seeking only to be justified in faith in Christ, doesn't that make us just as sinful as those who never had the law in the first place? And wouldn't that make Christ a minister of sin or a minister of lawlessness? And of course, Paul answers here is absolutely not. Certainly not. But rather, those seeking to be justified by the law by placing themselves back under the law is actually what promotes sin. Look again at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I, re what I tore down, meaning this, this law-based system, if I rebuild it again and, be, and seek to be justified by doing the law again, is what he's saying, then I am the one that proves to be a sinner and a promoter of sin. And so look what he says next in verses 19 through 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the phrase, through the law, I die to the law. What is Paul getting at here? What is he meaning by that? Well, if, you, if you'd go to Galatians chapter 3 and start at verse 23, go ahead and turn there. This is going to help us better understand the relationship of the law to us. So turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Remember what I said earlier, the purpose of the law was never intended to redeem us. Its purpose was to reveal our sinful condition to us and lead us to an understanding that we need someone outside of ourselves to save us. And so look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Listen to what it says. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see that? The law was like a mirror. That's what his intention was. If my son walked in from playing outside and I told him, son, you need to go to the bathroom because you have dirt all over your face. And he walks into the bathroom, looks into the mirror, and he sees for himself Oh yeah, there is dirt all over my face. Is it the mirror's job to clean him? No. The mirror's job is to point him to the fact that 
he needs to go to the shower, and he needs to get cleaned, right? And so, likewise, the, the law was, a, was our guardian. It was, a, it was a tutor. It was a mirror that reveals to us the reality of our own sinful hearts and points us to the only one that can truly cleanse us, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And because Jesus took the full penalty of the law upon himself on the cross, he ended the law's reign by fulfilling its demands. So look with me now at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Hang with me here. We're we're getting somewhere. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so now those who have died with Christ through faith in Christ also share in his victory over the law. And so if we think back to our passage in verse 19, Paul is saying that through the law, I understood my sinful condition and need for Jesus. And by exercising faith in Jesus, now I've died to the law. You see that? In other words, through faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under the power and the reign of sin that was brought by the law. It's no longer your master anymore. You are free forever from any claim the law had on you, and therefore you can live in that freedom through faith in Christ. Freedom from sin's curse and freedom from sin's power because he loved you and gave himself up for you. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is why we sing amazing grace. I mean, this is what it is right here. This is amazing grace. So praise God this morning. Brother and sister, if, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, this is a Savior who has bled and died for you so that you might be saved from sin's dominion and power over your life. And this is what justification by faith in Christ does. It's the only way to be delivered by law's demands because Christ fulfilled it on our behalf which is the ultimate definition of grace. And this is why we see in verse 21 why Paul says what he says. He says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, it is only justification by faith that upholds God's grace and Christ's sacrifice because it's the only way one can be saved. The person who insists that they can earn their salvation by their own efforts is the one in effect that is ignoring the grace of God and communicating that Christ's sacrifice was useless and not enough. And so this was Paul's message to Peter. And this is, our, this, this is his stern warning for us this morning as well. So let me just give a couple takeaways as we look at the gospel applied to us. First, we must live in step with the gospel. 
And so I'm wondering this morning if you've been thinking about an area of your life that you're not living in step with the gospel that you proclaim. What, are there any tendencies in your life that you try to take control of your own salvation and, and maybe even unknowingly forget the grace of God in you for what Christ has done for you? Do you tend to sometimes live a, a hypocritical lifestyle just like we, we saw with Peter, a life motivated kind of by the, the fear of man? Remember back to what Paul said in verse 14. Paul's reason for rebuking Peter was because his conduct was not in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was causing other people to turn away and to go with him. And he needed somebody to correct him and bring him back in the line. And sometimes that's true with us today. Our own conduct and how we live our life clearly puts on display what we believe about Jesus and his gospel. It exposes us on how well we have come to truly understand the love of God in Christ. And the reality of it is, from the most seasoned saint to the newest believer, we all are still liable to not live our life in accordance to what we say we believe. And that should humble us and help us to realize that apart from Christ, we really cannot do anything. And it's especially easy when we live in a society like we live in that is saturated by performance. And if we're not careful, we can carry that same mindset into our own Christianity and start to live out a performance-based type of Christianity. And that's the same trap that was, that was happening here. So, I mean, if you think about it, in our world today, everything's about performance. We check the performance of our stocks and investments, always trying to the, get to the next level. Most of our jobs are, are probably performance-based. We're always looking for the next sale, the next promotion, uh, the next raise, the next level in our business the next status of recognition from our boss or others in our workplace. Our performance-based mindset even seeps into our own parenting and our relationships and our health status and the list, and really it can just go on and on and on. And so where it gets dangerous is when it seeps into our spiritual life, where our service to the church, our giving, our obedience our worship, our Bible reading, even our prayers are looked at from this performance-based lens. Kind of like saying that a lens that causes you to believe that by doing blank, then I will earn God's full acceptance of me. But that is an anti-gospel. That is deviating from the gospel truth. In a sense, that is compromising the gospel message, exactly what Peter was doing as well. And so if you are a believer this morning, let, rem let me remind you of what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says. This is what it says. This is beautiful words. It says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, as Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says. That old man is dead. You are freed from the slavery of sin and freed from tirelessly working to try to earn your salvation. So my encouragement for you this morning is to continue to live your day-to-day walking by faith in this Jesus that you proclaim in his finished work for you. His grace is sufficient, and it's available for your every day and every need. Secondly, and lastly, justification by faith leads and has implications for how we live out our everyday life, especially among the people in the church. Justification by faith leads to unity among all of believers. And so when you kind of have this gospel freedom that I was just mentioning and just described, where you understand that you've been fully accepted by God, not based on your own merit, but based on what Christ has done for you alone, it really opens the door to how you relate to other people within his church. In other words, your understanding of justification by faith alone is seen and worked out in how you treat and how you accept other believers. And in the early church, justification by faith was the only way that really they were unified together as believers. Because when Christ came, he leveled the playing field between Jew and Gentile. He brought love to where there was hatred. He brought acceptance to where there was rejection. And he brought unity to where there was separation. And he brought peace to where there was hostility. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Likewise, what Paul says later in chapter 3, verse, verse 28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so this is what justification alone brings. It brings unity together. It brings oneness. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so that means one thing. We must accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. And through faith in Christ, if you think about our sins have been forgiven We've been declared righteous and justified. We've been fully accepted by God in all of our weaknesses and our failings and our messiness. And so we need to express the same attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Before coming to faith in Christ, I thought my little friend group that I had was like the, like as tight as family. But I had no idea what I was truly missing. After coming uh, in, in faith in Christ, a lot of those friends turned on me and started ridiculing me for my own faith. And one night I went to a Thursday night men's Bible study. And I'm sitting there and I look around the room and I see multiple ex-felons with tattoos all over their body. I see a business owner, a 70-year-old saint an army veteran, 
and three or four other guys that I would have never in my life prior to coming to faith would have ever hung out with probably. And I'm looking around the room and I'm like, only God could put together a group like this. And it was after that night was over, it felt like I knew those guys like my whole entire life. And the type of brotherly love I experienced for those men showed me that even though we looked different, we came from different backgrounds, we had different life experiences, and surely we had different likes and dislikes. The one thing that we had in common that bonded us together was our faith in Christ. We were men who were, who were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who had been justified by Christ's sacrifice. And because of that common foundation, our unity and acceptance and bond we had together was stronger than anything I've ever experienced. And this is what we have pictured in the church because, because of our justification in Christ alone. We are one together. We are unified together. And what we experience here on like a Sunday morning is just a glimpse of what it's going to be like in heaven where every tribe, every tongue, every nation will stand before the throne and the lamb crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing in this area? How are you cultivating a culture of acceptance among your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you tend to gravitate only towards people that like the same things as you, that, that talk just like you, maybe look just like you? What would it look like for you to love a brother and sister that may hold to a secondary or tertiary theological doctrine that differs from yours? We are all sinners saved by grace, and God is glorified when we truly live out our justification by faith, when we're united together, when we love each other and fully accept one another with no judgment. And so let me encourage you to take that step this morning. So is justification by faith just some theological head knowledge? I think it's fair to say from our pastors this morning that it's, it's much, much more than that. It's the basis of our Christian life and has deep implications for our unity and our love for one another. So let us glory in it, let us rejoice in it, and let us live it out through our love for one another. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you again this morning, we are reminded of your grace that we have seen in this passage that you have fully justified us by faith alone in your Son. God, we are so grateful for the work that he accomplished on the cross on our behalf, that he has paid our sin debt completely so that we could be free in him and free to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So thank you for Jesus. We celebrate him today. We praise him. We pray in his name. Amen.